0: The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. I'm going to be preaching over the next four weeks, the month of February, uh, through the book of Jonah. Jonah's always been kind of an interesting book for me. Actually, uh, many years ago when... Um, uh, you know, not long after my first son was born, uh, I had a friend from a pre- my previous church who was expecting a child. He was expecting a, a boy as well. And I remember asking him and his wife, oh, what what, uh, what do you think of naming your son? And, and they were like, well, we're thinking about Jonah. And, I, and my immediate response was, Jonah? I don't even know if he's going to be in heaven. <laughs> and uh, I immediately regretted saying that after it came out of my mouth. <laughs> and uh, they kind of looked at me and they were like, uh, they did name, end up naming their son Jonah. Uh, a few years after that, they, uh, they found out they were pregnant with a girl. And then I asked, this, I asked them again, like, oh, what name are you guys thinking for the girl? And they're like, well, mm, we're not going to tell you. <laughs> they named her Jezebel, by the way. I'm just kidding. They didn't name her Jezebel. <laughs> so I was thinking of, you know, calling this sermon series Jonah. Is he going to be in heaven? Question mark. But I decided on Jonah, The Depths of God's Grace. I don't know if you can see that there. I think it's a little more descriptive of what we see in this, in this short little book. It's, you know, it's really just a book made up of four chapters. That's part of the reason why I chose it. You can break it up very easily among the four weeks we have together. And just 58 verses um, in this entire book. And I think you'll find that, although it's a very well-known story, familiar to children and adults alike... There's far more to it than just this cute story about a reluctant prophet eaten by a giant fish. And uh, that certainly makes it unique, but there are other reasons why it's also unique. I think, um, you know, the people that God calls this prophet to serve are not his own. Uh, That's a bit unusual. This book has very little actual prophecy in it, and it's more of a, a story than it is a book of oracles the story of one man's, and by extension, a people's struggle to understand the heart of God. And through the use of some very unique literary devices like irony, humor, and satire, it's meant to evoke some very strong emotions within us and to, to elicit a response from the people of God. And I think that speaks a bit to the condition of the hearts that we find in Jonah and in the people in that time. That God is going to these kind of lengths to, to speak into their hearts. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be plumbing the vast depths of God's grace through the eyes of a very small man named Jonah. But before we do that, let's ask God um, to do that work, speaking to our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we submit this time and these coming weeks to you. Uh, we know that apart from you, Lord, uh, your word is a mystery to us. But your spirit can reveal truths that penetrate deep within our hearts. Your spirit can convict us of sin and open our eyes to our great need for you and the depths of your grace. And so, Lord, that is what we ask of you as we journey through this book, that you would reveal yourself and that you would reveal the true us to ourselves as well. And in that revealing, Lord, that we would fall on our knees in utter dependence upon your grace, your mercy, which we need each and every day. We submit it all to you, and it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, these few, past few weeks, I've been following the trial of Dr. Larry Nassar, and as some of you may know, he was the team doctor for the U.S. women's uh, gymnastics team, and he was employed by Michigan State University, and he's been accused, and now convicted, of abusing countless young female patients who were gymnasts. Just incredibly heartbreaking story. Um, And throughout the trial, his victims have not only testified against him, but they've had the opportunity to speak to him. And a few days ago, um, I ran across this video of a father named Randall Margraves, who had three daughters that were under Dr. Nassar's care. And he got his chance to, to speak to him. And I, I just want to show you real quickly what his response was. Just drop, Father, have a chance to say something. Go ahead, sir. In a courtroom, we we try we don't use profanity. But if you have some words that you would like to say, I would like to give you the opportunity to say them. I that. would ask you to, as part of this sentencing, to grant me five minutes in a lock room of this <laughs> demon. I have would a. Would you fe- do that? I, I. That is not yes how or our. no? No, sir. I can't. Would you do give that. me one minute? <laughs> I. <laughs> You know that I can't do that. That's not how our legal system is. Well, I'm I want, that, th- I want I that. I want that. I I want that. want you're good. You're good. What if this happened to you guys? You cannot behave like that. No one can behave like this. I'm to make sure it's crystal clear. I'm sure it's crystal clear. You haven't left the room, lady. You cannot behave like this. So, um, I don't know. When I watched that video, my heart just went out to him. You know, uh, I don't think anyone with half a heart could blame this dad for wanting to exercise his own form of justice on this doctor. And if you notice in the beginning of the video when he makes his request to have a minute with Nassar, the judge in the background says, you know, I I can't do that. That's not how our legal system works. And, you know, this dad has already received a huge outpouring of support on social media because I think many of us, especially those who are dads, and even if you're not a dad, I think we've all encountered these kinds of moments in our lives where we would have wanted nothing more than to see justice prevail right? where we felt like God's form of justice would not be good enough and so we wanted to take matters into our own hands I think we all have a little bit of Randall Margraves in us and sometimes God feels like that judge doesn't he inconsiderate of me and how his decisions and his rule impacts my life and we feel like God's not fair that he's withholding justice from us and we want ours. And so we cry out, do you even see me? Do you understand what I'm going through right now? Wouldn't the world be a better place if I could carry out justice if you won't do it? We don't want to believe a God that is unjust exists, right? A God who doesn't understand right and wrong who doesn't administer true justice, especially when we are the victims of injustice. So much so that, you know, even a a lot of atheists today, the, the number one reason why they say they don't believe in God is because there's just too much suffering, too much injustice in this world. And I think that's one of the central themes that this little book called Jonah actually tackles. Trying to understand a God who just doesn't really seem to care about what is right and wrong, at least by the way that I define it. He doesn't care about how his will affects my life. And it's a book about wrestling with a God who may care about the world, but we feel like he doesn't really care about us. You know, before we get into the book of Jonah, I think it would be helpful to first visit another passage in 2 Kings that will help set uh, up the context for this series. I don't know if you knew this, but this Jonah character actually shows up in one other place, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. And it says this about him and about the nation and the king at this time. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, had, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Libo as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Geth-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Uh, I know these verses are filled with a lot of strange names, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot here, but I want to highlight a, a few very important things that we learn about Jonah and the nation of Israel here. You know, Jonah lived during a very unique time in the history of Israel. He prophesied in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of Jeroboam II. And you might be wondering why this is important. Well, there were about a dozen kings before Jeroboam II. And if you know anything about the northern kingdom of Israel, none of these kings were good kings just bad after bad after really bad after bad after really really bad king and the spiritual condition of these kings were almost always a perfect reflection of the spiritual condition of the people as well and you could blame the king for this but the king's heart and attitude towards god was almost always identical to the way the people related to god as well and so both the king and the nation were not in a good place spiritually they had forgotten god they were living in sin And Jonah was a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, which made up ten tribes of Israel, which which had split off from the two tribes made up of the southern kingdom of Judah, right? Well over a century earlier. So Jonah and his people, they had never really experienced the glory days of Solomon's rule. They probably only heard stories of it. All Jonah and his parents... And his grandparents had known was a kingdom that was under bad king after bad king. And as a result, they lived under constant struggle, under perpetual oppression. Up until King Jeroboam II. They were a nation that had been reduced in size by their neighboring enemies who had taken their territories, who had oppressed them, even tortured them in unspeakable ways. But now for the first time in their lives under this king, they were experiencing prosperity for the longest stretch in their history too. You know, if you look at Israel's history, most kings lasted for a couple years or at most a couple decades. But Jeroboam's reign extends for over 40 years. These weren't just golden years. This was like a golden era. And through the, though this nation itself had fallen away from God, and, and though it did not have a very righteous leader, they were experiencing prosperity again. There was peace in the land. There was pride in their nation, and they had restored and secured their borders. Let me say this again. Though this nation itself had fallen away from God and did not have a righteous leader, they were experiencing prosperity again. There was peace in the land. Pride in their nation. And they had restored and secured their borders. Who says the Bible doesn't speak to our world today, right? And I think in a lot of ways, what was happening there is is happening here, even today. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. Just trying to bring to light, this is our world. This is speaking to us. So life is really good. You know, Israel has become a vacation destination again. And at this point, Jonah is really loving life as a prophet of God. Until we encounter him in the book of Jonah, his job was simply, he had the best job. He was a prophet, but he was a prophet who got to bear good news to his king, right? And so look at all the good that has come about. And he's thinking, look, I played no small part in making all this happen. It's because of his prophetic word that this King Jeroboam II um, expanded the borders, restored it almost back to where Solomon's rule was, and now the entire nation was reaping the benefits. But despite all that, it's obvious that God thinks very little of this king. And God wants to make clear to them that amidst their prosperity, something they didn't understand, that while Israel was enjoying a season of God's undeserved favor, It had nothing to do with them, right? Despite it, all these things that they were experiencing, God's blessing, God's goodness in their lives, it was not because they were walking with God or honoring Him or even remembering Him. Verse 26 tells us why God was blessing them. It says, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, For there was none left, bond or free, and there were none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. You see, God had seen their great suffering under these barbaric pagan nations. And he saw their bitter affliction. And he remembered his promise to them and to his people, even in their sin, that he was their God. And so he would honor his covenant to Abraham simply because of his grace and because of his mercy. That was the one and only reason that they were experiencing this unprecedented season of blessing. But the people, I th- they really had no idea. To them, everything was going great because everything looked good on the outside, but that was their mistake. They assumed that because everything was fine on the outside, that everything was good on the inside god's grace had not humbled them to turn towards him it only made them more entitled more selfish more sinful you know it grieves me as a pastor to think about that you know that some of us in this very room may one day stand before god having deceived ourselves into thinking that we are good with him because he has been good to us When the truth is, God is nothing more than an afterthought in our daily struggles to obtaining the good life. And if you find yourself in this place, then let the word of God speak into your heart and respond with repentance. And so it was in such a time as this, where prosperity and complacency meet, that we come to the book of Jonah, And I'm going to go through the first chapter a bit piecemeal here. I'm just going to take it in chunks, and then we're going to unpack it as we go. But beginning in verse 1, in Jonah, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So in the midst of this unprecedented era of peace and prosperity, Jonah is given his second prophetic mission and is nothing like the first one. God wants Jonah to make a trip to one of their most hated enemies, to Assyria, to give them a call to repentance so that the people of this huge capital city might be spared for their sin. And what is Jonah's immediate reaction? Like we all know, he doesn't say a word. He just runs. He runs. And he flees in the exact opposite direction from where God was calling him to go. And, you know, it's not very clear from reading just chapter 1, but it becomes very obvious by the end of the book that Jonah does not want to go for one simple reason. He despises these people. He wants them annihilated. He wants them wiped off the face of the earth. They were legendary, incredibly barbaric people. And as long as they were alive and well, they represented a threat to Jonah and to Israel's very existence. And to Jonah, Jonah, this wasn't just foolish. This was just incredibly unjust. How could God even consider showing mercy to a nation of brutal savages were far more wicked than they were, and a threat to their existence. How could he ask Jonah to actually play a part in potentially saving them? <clears throat> you know, today's Super Bowl Sunday, and as some of you may know, one of the controversies that has plagued the NFL this entire season is this, this whole kneeling, right, in protest during the national anthem, where, you know, some players... Uh, are taking a, have been taking a knee during the singing of the National Anthem in support of you know, Black Lives Matters and, w- and just other injustices they're seeing in our country, especially in our inner cities. And there are others who feel that doing this is a grave dishonor to our flag and, and to those who have served in the military, and it's created a lot of controversy. But regardless of where you stand on this issue, this act of kneeling represents an act of protest. It's an attempt to bring awareness to an injustice that is taking place. And you want the whole world to know that you are making a stand for what you believe is right. And I think in the same way, this is what's happening with Jonah. But instead of kneeling in protest, he's running in protest. And he's angry. And he sees this great injustice that God is perpetrating against him and against his people. And so this is what he, that's how he responds. He runs. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So Jonah wastes no time finding the first ship headed in the opposite direction, and he boards it. And he apparently has no qualms, no dissonance about his decision, because even in the midst of this great storm, he can find enough inner peace to just nestle down and take a nap. And here's where we begin to see Jonah's downward spiral, right? And all it took was one simple perceived injustice of God in his life. And notice the progression of the, from the opening verses to here. It says that Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord and what? He went down to Joppa. And then it says Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then it says he even got lower. He laid down and was fast asleep. You see what the writer is doing here? In his turning away from God, Jonah finds himself going down, going down, going down. In every sense of the word, his actions were a reflection of what was happening in his heart. And verse 6, says, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. So in the face of imminent doom, you know, these pagan sailors, they're desperately trying to save themselves. And to his amazement, the captain finds Jonah fast asleep at the bottom of the ship. And he says, hey, get up, do something. We've all been crying out to our gods. Cry out to your God. Maybe he will show that he cares and he'll save us. I want to pause here and just let that sink in because this is going to be a a recurring theme throughout this book. This exact question and that word, does God really care? Is God really concerned? Will He save us from perishing? And I think the whole reason Jonah is on that boat is because he is convinced that God does not care. Maybe about his enemies, but He doesn't care about me or my people. And he wanted nothing to do with God. And so these pagan sailors are doing everything in their power to save themselves. And at this point, they've done everything they can. They've emptied the ship. They've prayed to their gods. And still, things are no better. They're just getting worse. And they can't figure out what's happening. And so they cast lots to see who's responsible. And verse 8 says, Then they said to him, Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, What, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. You see the irony of this moment here. There's a, here's a man who declares that he's a Hebrew who worships not just any God, but the God of heaven, who created the seas and the dry land. And what is he doing? He's fleeing from God through the seas and through dry land that God created. It seems completely nonsensical, doesn't it? And, you know, Jonah grew up learning all the proper theology so that even at a moment's notice, he could give you the correct answer. He could give you the right Hebrew definition of God. And yet in his heart and through his actions, it's obvious he doesn't really believe it. He's trying to run from a God who created this seasoned dry land. And the irony again is that he doesn't really believe And yet, when you look at the pagan sailors, what do they do? They immediately, they believe, and they have great fear, and they say, what is this you've done? God doesn't even have to yell at Jonah here, right? More shamefully, it's through these completely lost pagans who are connecting the dots for him. In verse 11, it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, Innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You know, Jonah doesn't seem all that interested in living anymore, does he? If he knows that God has brought this storm because of his deliberate disobedience then he would think that his first response would be to look at the heavens and just repent forgive me God I will go and do as you say but no he just says here's your solution just throw me overboard but they don't want to do that and he has the gall to just actually sit there and watch them try to save his life by rowing harder and harder to no avail and still Jonah does nothing It's not until they've exhausted every option that they finally throw him into the stormy waters and suddenly the seas are calm again. You know, it's so glaring, isn't it? The character and the righteousness of these handful of pagan sailors that's demonstrated here, especially when you compare it to the petulance of Jonah. Here's a Hebrew who was a long, and storied history of God's faithfulness to him and to his people. A God who is even now showing his people favor and grace and mercy, though they don't deserve it. And yet he's completely indifferent, even angry at this awesome God. He shows no compassion for others, whether it's the sailors in this boat or the unsaved in Nineveh. And while these pagan sailors who don't even know and have no history and no relationship with the one true God are far more apt to cry out to God in prayer, we see. Far more spiritually sensitive to what's happening. And they demonstrate far more compassion and concern for this Hebrew prophet who's shown that he could care less. And they respond also with faith in this living, fearsome God. It's amazing. God is revealing what is inside Jonah's heart without even saying a word. It's on full display, and it's in stark contrast. And still Jonah's unable to see it. You know, Ravi Zacharias um, wrote an article few years ago about this classic novel written by Oscar Wilde entitled The Picture of Dorian Gray. I don't know if you've read it. I actually have not read it. But this story has always stuck with me throughout the years. It's such a powerful illustration, I think, of the ability to deceive ourselves. And in this article, Ravi wrote this. He says, in the novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde describes an exceptionally handsome young man, so captivating that he drew the awe-stricken adulation of a great artist. And this artist asked asked Dorian to be the subject of a portrait, for he had never seen a face so attractive and so pure. And when the painting was completed, young Dorian became so enraptured by his own looks that he wistfully intoned how wonderful it would be if he could live any way he pleased, but that no disfigurement of a lawless lifestyle would mar the picture of his own face. If only the portrait would grow old and he himself could remain unscathed by time and by the way of life. He was willing to trade his soul for that wish. Many days had passed and one day alone and pensive Dorian went up to the attic and uncovered the portrait that he had kept hidden for so many years only to be shocked by what he saw. Horror, hideousness and blood marred the portrait. The charade came to an end when the artist himself saw the picture that he had painted. It told the story. And he pled with Dorian to come clean, saying, doesn't it not say somewhere, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow? But in a fit of rage to silence this voice of conscience, Dorian grabbed a knife and he killed the artist. There was now only one thing left for him to do. He took the knife to remove the only visible reminder of his wicked life. But the moment he thrust the blade into the canvas, the portrait returned to its pristine beauty, while Dorian lay stabbed to death on the floor. The ravages that had marred the picture now so disfigured him that even his servants could no longer recognize him. And Ravi closes with this thought in this article. He says, This today we find a limitless capacity to raise the question of evil as we see it outside ourselves, but often hold an equal unwillingness to address the evil within us. You know, years of learning proper theology, years of being the recipients of God's undeserved blessings. And proclaiming that God is good did nothing to change the ugliness that was deep inside Jonah's heart. And we cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that we are somehow different. Have you ever found yourself in one of your more sober moments when you, you know maybe you're driving or maybe you're dealing with you know, your kids in a rebellious moment? Maybe you're in the middle of an argument with your spouse and you do something, or you say something, or you think something that even startles you. And you say, man, I, seriously, I don't think I'm better than even a non-Christian. That's Jonah chapter 1. And I think that's also a mercy of God. You know, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that life just, it just gets harder If you're young, I'm sorry for the bad news. (laughs) But it gets harder and harder as you get older. And, um, you know, honestly, I don't know if I sin less than I used to. Sometimes I wonder if I sin more. And with every passing stage in life, you know, from adolescence to adulthood, from adulthood to marriage, from marriage to parenting, from parenting children to parenting teenagers, through each phase I'm realizing life's really hard. It's hard to live a righteous life. And you begin to realize truly how weak I am, how truly weak I am. That I'm a man in need of God's grace. That's Jonah chapter 1. And at, at the opening of this book, we're told that this stench of great evil has risen up and it has caught the attention of God. But with each passing verse in this first chapter, we learn that there exists a more subtle, more insidious form of evil that is far closer to home. And it's not in the city of Nineveh. It's in the heart of Jonah. That's Jonah chapter 1. Let's pray together. Perhaps God has brought a grave injustice into your life and it has served to bring up all the ugliness that is inside your heart that you didn't even know existed. Perhaps he's brought a disruption into your life that up until this point Can be defined as nothing more than just a charmed existence. And this disruption, this injustice is causing you to reel in anger towards God. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. God, what are you doing? And although the contrast between the heart of Jonah and these sailors is so stark, the biggest heart we see in these pages, the greatest contrast, is found in the heart of God. A God who can control the wind and the waves, who can certainly bring his message to Nineveh without the help of a small man named Jonah. And yet here this same God is unwilling to just let the small man run away from him. leave his presence. Instead, he is chasing after that same man that wants nothing to do with him, that has rejected him, that hates him. And I believe the same is true of you and I today. You know, God wants us to see the depths of our sin. Because it's impossible understand the depths of His grace, the wonder of His love, until we first look inward and we are honest about the depths of our own sin. And it's painful, but it is the first and the most necessary step in the journey of understanding His grace in your life. Don't fight Don't run like Jonah. Don't wallow in anger and bitterness. But God desires you to turn your eyes towards him. In the revelation of your sin, to fall on his grace. He is faithful. He's good.